Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 12? Mark 12, page 848 on a Blue Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. Uh, this will be the, the last week in Mark for a while until we pick it back up again in January. And we're going to do the first 12 verses of Mark 12, and, and it's a parable. We're going to hear a parable from Jesus this morning. And if you've been around church, you know what that means, or you kind of know what that means. Maybe if you have not been very familiar with church, you grew up in church, you, you don't know. And the, the best definition of a parable that I have found is that it is a deceptively simple story. It's a deceptively simple story that illustrates something about the kingdom of God. The Synoptic Gospels are uh, full of them. We saw a series of them back in Mark chapter 4. But interestingly, this is the only time in the Synoptic Gospels that only one parable is said without others around it. It's a standalone parable. It's the only time Mark's going to tell us one in this last week of Jesus' life through the end of the Gospel. And so there's something about this one that he just wanted to spotlight in and of itself. And the thing about parables is that what we have found when we read them is that when Jesus is talking to people, they often don't really understand. They're actually really difficult to interpret for the people that are listening. They, they are, they're simple in and of themselves, but they're hard to know. Well, what, what does that mean? So I, I get the parable part, but what, what, what's it actually telling us about the kingdom of God? It's why the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, would hear Jesus tell a parable around all the crowds, and they'd stand there and go, mm-hmm, praise God, Je preach it, brother preach it, the crowds would leave and they'd be like, what the heck was that, Jesus? Like, I talked to Peter, he's got nothing, I got nothing. Like, explain yourself. What was that? That's often how parables are treated in the Gospels. But I say all of that to say this, hear me. Um, this morning is not one of those. This is as plain and direct a parable can get when you consider who's telling it and who he's actually talking to. Chapter 12 starts in a conversation that uh, is ongoing from last week that we saw between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. And last week they exchanged questions back and forth, but now Jesus shifts to tell a parable and they figure it out. They know by the end he is talking about them. All the other parables they don't really understand and then they just kind of walk away. But this one's different. So the final verse of our passage, verse 12, to just show this even before we get going. Verse 12 says, And they, they being the religious leaders, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. Watch. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They perceived. They realized, oh, this is about us. And they hated him for it. But I wonder if you've ever been in a similar situation, if you thought about it, where somebody comes to you and they're angry about something and they're venting and they're frustrating and they're talking to you. And at some point in this conversation, you realize, oh, they're mad at me. <laughs> oh, this is, this is actually about me. This is for me. Um, it reminded me my, my senior year basketball season down at TCNJ. Uh, you know, this last week, basketball just kind of took off from college ranks. Some of you are excited, some of you are not. Um, but anyway, my team going into the senior year, we had a really strong start going into Thanksgiving. 4-0, 5-0 into Thanksgiving break. And the first game after the break was a Saturday after Thanksgiving, and it was a team that was not very good, that we did not take seriously. And so we waltzed in there, we're 4-0, we're 5-0, thinking we're just going to roll in, take care of business, and roll out. And that did not happen. 
We went in and got worked out. We got beat handedly. And so, as you might expect, the next day at practice, our coach just came in fired up. And at this point, this coach, he had been here a year plus, and I'd been on his good side. I'd never really been rebuked by him at this point. Uh, Actually, going into the season, he named me one of the co-captains. And so I come into this kind of venting session where he's just ripping into the team, and my stance is like, yes, we need, like, everyone needs to hear this. This is for all you guys. We got to step it up. And then at some point in this um, venting, it like shifted that actually what he was most angry at were the two co-captains. Because he held us responsible for not getting our team focused at all, for kind of leading the pack on the whole ride to the game, just joking around, not taking things seriously. And then if like that wasn't clear, he actually just started calling me out by name in front of the whole team. Like, I'm mad at you. This is on you. And at that point, it was that point in conversation we go, oh, this is not just for everyone else. This is for me. And I didn't see it coming. And then it changes everything when you realize this is for you. But here's the thing, it forces you to respond. When, when, when something is just put before you, at you, in that way, you can't just be neutral about it. You can't just be like, oh, oh well, and go about your day or go about your life. So the religious leaders found out some point in this parable, this is for them. And, and here's what I wonder this morning as we go into it. Is it possible that this is for you this morning? Are you open to that? Is it possible this passage is for you? That's something I hear often, something I do often after a sermon, or I'm listening to a sermon and go, I wish so-and-so was here. You ever do that? Bill needs to hear this. I can't believe he wasn't here this Sunday. And all the while, missing the fact that, no, there was something here for me. And so I hope we are all open to that this morning. It's commonly known as the parable of the tenants. Parable of the tenants. And as we'll see, this parable is pretty amazing and that essentially gives you the whole Bible story in 12 verses. Have you ever wondered, what's the Bible about? Like, just sum it down for me. Distill it down. What's the story of the Bible? It's all here. We're going to see it. So I don't do this often, but we're going to read this whole passage up front. Would you stand with me as we just read God's word together? You know, a lot of things get spoken in a worship service, sung and prayed and preached. The only time the words are going to be perfect, the only time the words are going to be perfect are when this word is read. So let's follow along. Mark 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. 
Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Amen. You can take a seat. When Jesus speaks in parables, what he do, does is he uses everyday word pictures and illustrations that men and women around him would very readily understand. It's like if you're talking to somebody and you realize they're just not picking up what I'm throwing down right now. They have no idea what I'm saying. You would be like, hey, it's kind of like this. And you try and find something in their life that they could kind of connect the dots. Uh, one commentator said that it's possible, since Jesus does most of his teaching outside, that where he got his parables from was that as they were looking around something with an eyesight he just said hey it's kind of like that you see that vineyard over there the kingdom of God it's kind of like this but the story is very straightforward that we just read an owner planted a vineyard he leased it to tenants they were charged with working the land the owner sends servants in his place to go receive some of the produce and the tenants refused to hand it over and they beat some people, and they kill some people, and then the owner sends his own son, and the tenants kill him. That's the story. So what's it about? But this parable would not just be familiar to the religious leaders in that they know the economics of vineyards, which I'm sure they did. But this illustration is virtually identical to what is written in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. When Isaiah was prophesying against the nation of Judah and warning them of what was to come, and Jesus knows that these religious leaders know their Bibles. They are very familiar with the story of Isaiah. The problem is, they never thought it would get turned on them like this. So here's how I just want to break it down. We're, we're going to do it by characters in the parable, which are very plainly connected. So first, God as the owner this is the central, most powerful character in the story, the one with the most authority. It starts with him, and he's over it all. And the reason is simply because he owns it. He initiated this story by his own hands. A man planted a vineyard, and that man chose the location. He provided the resources. He took on the liability and the cost. He put in the labor He chose how big the pit would be. He put the fence up. He, he built the tower. There is no question, anybody reading this, as to whose vineyard this is. And it's the simplest and most important truth in the parable. And likewise, one of the most basic and somehow often overlooked attributes of God is that he is the creator of all things. There is nothing in this world that's not his, ever, anywhere, at any time. He owns everything. It's the first truth that many of our children learn before anything else. And the reason is because it's the first truth put forth in the Bible. If you had never seen a Bible in your life, and you just stumbled across it, and it was in your language, and you said, all right, I'm going to start at the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the first book. What are you going to read? Derek Thomas says it this way. No verse is more pregnant with meaning than the opening one of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is the most simple and foundational truth in the entire Bible. 
Because if you believe that, if you start there, if that is true, then already you can cross off the majority of worldviews that have happened across history, that there is one God here. And he's not in some epic struggle, struggle with good and evil. That he is sovereign over all things. And there's not multiple gods here. He's not one amongst many. And God existed before anything material ever existed. So God is not synonymous with the world. God isn't nature. Nature isn't God. God created nature. Okay, so if you go through all the worldviews that come across history that still exist, dualism's out, polytheism out, materialism out, pantheism out, if Genesis 1-1 is true. It is full of meaning for how the rest of the world is designed to work because there is one owner and it's all his. And we would agree the owner of this vineyard, he gets to decide how the vineyard will be operated. And he gets to decide who's going to be in that fence. And he's going to, be, he's going to decide how it's going to work, right? He built it 100%. And likewise, that first truth we see in the Bible that God was and is the owner of everything, period, stop. And if that's true, it has huge implications for everything that's going to follow. Namely, he decides how the world's going to work. He, design, he designs and decides how things are going to be designed, and the creation will never flip that back on him. And I just wonder, even those of us who have been in church and we've heard this and we've seen Genesis 1-1 more times than we could count, I wonder if we actually view ourselves and our things in this way. Do you know that? That you're not owners. That I own nothing. That I am merely a manager. A, a steward. And when I came into this world, I had nothing. And when I go out of this world, I will have nothing in this material world. And in the middle of those two events, we get to manage and steward some things for a little while, but they're never ours. It's the first most foundational point in the Bible. And then three chapters in, so again, if you're just reading that story, you're like, oh, chapter one's pretty good. Chapter two's pretty good. This is looking pretty, I think I'm going to like this book. Chapter three, all falls apart. Because we find that those made in his image, man and women, the most cherished part of his creation, rebel against that authority. They rebel against that most foundational truth. And with it, sin enters the world, introducing death and pain and toil into the creation. And from that moment, chapter 3 of the first book of the Bible, God begins the work of restoring this creation back to its initial beautiful design. And the whole story of the Bible is unfolding how that's going to happen. But if you're going to understand that storyline, it starts here. God, he owns everything. And don't forget it. Second, the nation of Israel is the vineyard. Israel is the vineyard. So the owner planted the vineyard in order to produce chosen fruit and yield a plentiful harvest. That's why anybody plants anything. You have a garden in your backyard. You plant it to get something from it. You, you plant it to produce something. And in that relationship, the owner is active. The vineyard is passive. A vineyard does not plant itself. It has to be cultivated and dug out and chosen and actively put there and then protected with the fence and the tower, etc., etc., and in the same way, the formation of God's people was through the active grace and choice of the Father. So 
following this line of the Bible, 12 chapters in, God approaches a man named Abram. Abram did not know him. Abram was just not so impressive that God had to bless him. Abram was not living for him. Abram did not really understand who God was, but God chose him and God revealed himself to him. In Genesis 12, 12 2, we read this, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And God's people, the nation of Israel, would come from this man. And what's most stunning about it at the start is that it began with a miracle, a miracle child for him and his wife Sarah, who were advanced in years and were not able to have children up to that point. And that family line grows to about 70, and they're doing well in the land that got a lot of possessions, but then a famine hits. And through God's providential hand on them, through a man named Joseph in the family, God provides a place for them down in the nation of Egypt. And initially, that is good news, but then what happens is a new generation comes to power in Egypt, and they don't know these foreigners, they don't know these refugees, and they turn on them. And they slave this family for the next 400 years. And in that time period, that family of 70 grows to a nation of 1.5 million called Israel. And in the climactic Old Testament event, God raises a man named Moses to be the means through which he saves his people from bondage. Again, not because they were so impressive, not because they, uh, God just had to do it, but simply because of his gracious decision to actively act for his name's sake to fulfill his promises to their father, Abraham. And in due time, he leads these people to the promised land where they, now they have a fertile home country and they will be his people and he will be their God. And in case there was any confusion about this, in case there was any confusion that they start to walk with a little bit of swag and put their chest out like, I earned this, we earned this, Moses sets them straight in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. Verses will be on the screen. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Watch verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see it? Why does God love you? Why does God love his people? Because he loves you. It is that simple. And their job is to carry out the mission that he gave to Abraham to be fruitful and multiply. To be a fruitful nation that produces a harvest, that harvest being a blessing to all nations. He blessed them to be a blessing to others. And so you see God's active, gracious character, that does not begin when Jesus comes. This narrative of you had the angry God in the Old Testament, but then became nice in Jesus in the New Testament. That's wrong. God's grace, God's love is the very thread that gets pulled through this whole Bible story from the start that he acts for his name's sake, that he is faithful to fulfill all his promises, and he will never fail. This is how God works. He chooses men and women out of his sovereign grace. He reveals himself, pours his mercy on them for his glory and their redemption. God creates. God plants. Back to the parable. Third, the religious leaders of Israel are the tenants 
So the concept of a lease back in the first century is really not that much different from what we think about it today. The tenants would be chosen by the owner to work the land, to produce the harvest, to benefit from the production that they have, and then pay a percentage of that harvest back to the owner as rent. So they have real responsibility. They play very authoritative, important roles, but they're not the owners. The owner sets the term before leaving, that a certain percentage of his choosing is due back to him. So we you know, maybe aren't thinking about this in terms of farms and farmland in northern New Jersey, but we can think about it like renting a house or an apartment. Maybe one you're living in for an extended period of time, or maybe you and your family go to the shore every summer and you rent a house down there. You get to live in that house. That is yours. You, have, you benefit from its location to wherever it is, its location to the beach. You benefit from whatever aspects of the house are there, and in return, you pay rent. It's not free. You don't have the final say on the price. The owner does. We all understand this. This is not a uh, debate, right? This is the relationship of a tenant and an owner. And the role of a tenant is to agree to the terms of the agreement, pay the agreed amount, and then take good care of the place until that rental or lease is finished. And so within the nation of Israel, this now growing, booming nation in fertile, promised land, God has placed men and women into leadership roles, priests and judges and tribal leaders, and then eventually kings to lead the nation in the work of of what? Of producing that plentiful harvest, of, of being a blessing for all nations, of being glorifying to God and raising up generation after generation in the truth of the Lord. And they had real authority, And yet, that authority would never exceed God's authority. He's the owner. They're the tenants. Anything they have is given to them from God. Again, present day, maybe in your work, you're what people would call a middle manager. Maybe that's you you have a team under you that that you actually have control of. And you are responsible for them and their work and the work that they produce. But as a middle manager, you're not the owner. And normally, I don't think middle managers would be confused about this, that while you have real authority, you have a real team under you, you also have somebody over you, somebody who's dictating to you what your job should be, somebody who's evaluating you, somebody who's giving you this you authority for the thriving of the company. That's the job of these tenants in the vineyard. And the recurring narrative of the Old Testament is the failure the failure of these religious leaders to do their job faithfully. Over and over again, we see stories where sin is just rampant. The worship of other nations' God is prolific, and they become captive to their own greed and their own pride and their own arrogance time and time again. And yes, there would be some bright spots. There would be some times of just grace and mercy where where a generation would be led by a godly leader for a time, but then you turn the page. And that man died. And then somebody else will come into power and sink Israel back into oblivion and disobedience in the breaking of the covenant. The tenants were called and expected to produce a good harvest, but over and over again, the grapes were spoiled, were rotten and useless. Fourth, the prophets are the servants 
So in the parable, the owner now lives in a faraway land, and he would send servants back to the vineyard to uh, check in on the tenants and then collect the fruit that they agreed that came back to him as the owner. And it was a disaster. The first one, beaten and sent away with nothing. You're like, man, that's pretty rough, but you find that he actually got the best deal of them all. The second one, it got worse. His head is beaten in, whatever that means, and he's shamefully treated. And then the third one, they just killed him. And then Mark tells us on and on it went with many others. Some were beaten, some were killed, all treated with contempt. And the obvious connection here is how God, through Israel's history of disobedience and just failing to obey their agreement and their covenant, repeatedly sent prophets. Prophets to the nation's leaders to point out their unfaithfulness and warn them of what will happen if they do not repent and turn it around. There's 17 books in the Old Testament that are just called prophetical books. Over and over again. And here's what I just want to note. Note the patience of the owner in this story. If I'm the owner and that happens to one of my servants, I'm flipping out. I'm coming and shutting it down right there. But he doesn't. In his sovereign grace, gives them repeated chances over a long period of time to turn their ways. That maybe they'll treat this one differently. That maybe they'll listen to this one. And maybe they will eventually follow the agreement that they had in the first place. And it's this picture of the Lord's patience all throughout the Old Testament. You can't get around it. Because as you're reading it, you're like, God, what are you doing? These guys are not going to get it. They're never going to get it. Don't send them anybody else. And yet, his desire is for Israel to repent, to turn back to him. And he's willing to give them second chances and third chances. And he's just gracious in his approach. And yet, every time, the tenants mistake patience for weakness. It's a big mistake. And they treat the prophets with contempt. And by and large, they refuse to turn from their wicked ways. And they beat and they imprison and they kill. So what's the owner going to do? Fifth, Jesus is the beloved son. Um, I try not overspeak or overstate things, but I don't think it's overstating it. That verse 6 in this parable is the most dramatic verse in the passage. And I don't think it's overstating it to say it's probably one of the most dramatic verses in the whole Bible. Verse 6, look at it again. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. The most scandalous part of the parable is that the owner, after knowing what has happened to the prophets, still gives them a final chance, and this time he sends his own son. That word beloved was synonymous with only. The only son this owner had went to the wicked tenants. And this son is not just the next in line of the servants. There are major differences. The servants, they were many, but the son is unique. The servants were hired, but the son is the heir. The servants were the forerunners, but the son is the final messenger. What's this tell us about the Bible's story? This 
story we've been tracing from Genesis 1-1. You know what this simple parable did for me is it spotlights the amazing, scandalous grace of God. That out of his deep love and mercy, he would not withhold his one and only son from the very people who hated him and rebelled against him. Let that never feel normal to us. Let that never just bounce off you like, yeah, I've heard that a million times before. That should never be normal. That is unfiltered grace. Grace that we would almost say that's irresponsible. We don't understand it. That's, un, that's completely unmerited favor by God. That's the grace of our God. That's the grace of the God of the Bible. If, if, if people who were listening to all of Mark were paying attention, if you've been with us in Mark, that word beloved son, we've seen it before. We saw it at Jesus' baptism when he came out of the water. He said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. We saw it many chapters later at the Mount of Transfiguration when, when God's voice came out of the clouds and said to Peter and James and John, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Simple power. Well, in the parable, the son comes and the tenants make a fatal mistake. They think, oh, the son is here. That must mean the owner's dead. If the owner's dead and we kill the heir, now the vineyard's ours. We become the owners. And so they kill him. And they fool themselves into thinking that now they have control and no one can tell them what to do now. It's all theirs. And then the parable stops. And at this point, Jesus now asks the religious leaders who are listening to him a question. What's the owner going to do? What would you do? But he answers the question himself before they do. He will come and destroy the tenants. It's at this point where the religious leaders seem to have their aha moment. Oh, this is about us. He's speaking this against us. You know, they went from thinking they were the owners to being the tenants. This story just changed. They went from being the authoritative figures over all of Israel, the ones with all the power and all the control, and they get to say on how things work, to now in this story, they're the rebellious bunch and God will destroy them. And, as you might expect, this infuriates them. And their response amongst themselves is, we just want to arrest this guy right now. Like in front of all the crowds, at the temple gates, put him in cuffs, let's go. This guy's done. But they had that little fear of man. Doesn't that always get you? And it got him again. It got him last week, and it gets him again, this fear of man, because they realized the story was just told. They perceived this was against them, and so they can't just arrest him because the crowds would see that that's ludicrous. And they feared the crowds. So they just leave. And their hearts are hardened against Jesus, even more hardened than they were at the beginning of this parable. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. The most important verses in this passage are when Jesus quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's a complicated verse. It was complicated in Psalm 118. I'm sure people didn't really understand what it meant when they read it. But Jesus, again, now being outside the parable, speaking directly to them, to his disciples, to the crowds that are around, saying, and don't miss this, at this moment of rejection, of killing the heir, is the fulfillment of the most important ancient prophecy there ever has been. That in the sovereign, all-knowing, complete control of God, the rejection of the Son will be the glorious reversal and the apex of his work to redeem and forgive a fallen world. The cross, it's, it's a few days away for Jesus at this point. The, the symbol of rejection and failure in the Roman Empire, no more brutal way to be crucified. The symbol of the height of evil, of where men will go to keep control, to oppress that that symbol will now be the very symbol through which sin is paid for and forgiveness is offered. It's the glorious reversal of the Bible. And that stone just being tossed away now is the cornerstone. And the empty tomb three days later is where everything turns in the Bible story. That, that what the enemy meant for evil, God used it for good. And, and that's where Jesus can say, make no mistake, brothers, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in the eyes of those who can see it. And there you have the whole story of the Bible. Because the Bible, and I talk to people a lot of times, and I still feel it sometimes when I read it, the Bible can be confusing once in a while, right? Maybe, if you're having a bad day. Like you can read something and go, I just don't really know what that means. It can be really difficult to unpack and understand. But the overarching storyline is actually very simple. And the parable just laid it all out in 12 verses. It gave you creation, it gave you fall, it gave you Christmas and Easter, and then it gave you the second return. That God creates, and then man sins, and then God sends, God saves, and God will be coming back to judge. That's the Bible in 12 verses. And the religious leaders rejected it, as was predicted. They hated him, and they walked away to brainstorm how they can kill him. The singular truth of this parable is that to reject the Son is to reject the Father. And when Jesus elsewhere in the Gospel of John says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one gets to the Father except through me, when he says that, he means it. It's the most loving thing he could say, and in this parable directly connects to that singular massive truth that Jesus, he's not a way amongst many. It's not a buffet line that, hey, you can choose Jesus or you can go get something else, but whatever you need to get full. He's the way. And, and people, we're not called to have faith in general. Just have faith in something. Get your convictions in something and then let that steer you. Isn't that not the gospel of our culture? Go live for something. Whatever you want that to be. And we get immersed and discipled by this culture thinking, yeah, that's kind of the most loving thing to do. Just let them do whatever they want. When the Bible and Jesus himself clearly says, no, there is one way, and it's faith in Jesus Christ. 
And we know this from Acts chapter 4. Peter is preaching at this point to uh, religious leaders again in Jerusalem. After Jesus has ascended to the Father, the Holy Spirit has descended upon Peter and the rest of the disciples. He says this, verses on the screen, verses 10 through 12. Think about the parable as Peter says this. He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way to the Father except through the Son. And the most loving thing we can do is to proclaim that clearly. And so the question that is left open for everyone who confronts this parable is, will you believe and accept the Son? Again, that quote from last week from Tim Keller proves uh, applicable again today. Every person in the world will either kill him or crown him. So what will you do? And our God is gracious, and our God is patient, and he is slow to anger, but hear me, Do not confuse patience with weakness. God is patient, but he is not weak. And he is gracious, but he is not soft. He is the lion and the lamb. He is the suffering Messiah. He is the crucified king. And he reigns as the cornerstone. And he will be coming back in judgment based upon those and what we have done with him. And if you are in here and you are a believer, praise God for that, that that was by God's grace, that we don't stick out our chest to see, look what I've found out, that God has revealed himself in a powerful way, and we praise his name for that. And so the question for you is, how are you stewarding the responsibility God has given you? You have real authority in this life, like the tenants did in the vineyard, to be fruitful and multiply. And the new covenant that was said like this, go make disciples. Your eyes fixed on Christ because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And you have been chosen and you have been loved and you have been planted and cultivated and give glory to his name. Live a life worthy of the harvest that is within you and be encouraged, church, because you are built upon the cornerstone. And in him, by his grace, through faith, when he returns, He will be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray.